You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to a unique episode of the Apple Insider Podcast, episode 164. I'm your host, Victor, and I'm going to be doing this one solo, thanks to some technical difficulties that we had with an earlier attempt at the episode. Thank you so much for joining me and bearing with me. And I want to go ahead and thank all of our listeners who've been sending me pictures of their iPods. It's so cool to see that. I really appreciate it. And I want to specifically mention uh, Sylvan of Apple Momblog. And I want to mention Nowhere Man. I want to thank all of you for doing this. There's a lovely picture of an iPod Touch fourth generation running the podcast. There's a beautiful picture of an iPod Mini 2 with the podcast with a bunch of iPods lined up, ranging from the Touch first generation, the Mini four generations of nanos and three generations of shuffles. It's really rewarding to see you guys listening and and really sharing that with us. And if you have more pictures of iPods, please take them. We'd love seeing that. I want to start right off by talking about the story that really resonated with me this week. And it's about Siri. The information published a story about some of the different problems in Siri's history in terms of infighting and mistakes and developers alienated by other developers. And this is is generally no real surprise in a large enough organization where turf wars take over, where people in, in middle management decide that they know the way to chart the product path, and they, they sort of develop little fiefdoms or kingdoms and try and push their theory forward. And the thing is that we don't usually think of Apple as having those kinds of problems, thanks to strong leadership examples like Steve Jobs or Scott Forstall, who have the reputation for having been firm and decisive in pushing forward decisions to keep people focused on the product and not on their own personal victories or personal glory, that they would instead try and make decisions that would take roadblocks out of the way of developers. And this is something that, that seems to have played Siri from the very beginning. You know, there were a number of different people in charge of Siri. You know, there were a number of different people leading Siri. So it started with Scott Forstall, uh, Randy Williamson, uh, Eddie Q has been in charge of it. It's now in, under the, the heading of Craig Federighi. It's, it's moved around an awful lot. And whenever you have that kind of, of revolving door, it's very difficult to keep a strong vision as the driving path for everyone to follow. The other thing that, that the information talked about was the pace of software, that, that after after it was under Randy Williamson's leadership, that Williamson decided that it ought, development ought to take place on a yearly basis, just as delivering software for the iPhone had taken place. Uh, which a lot of members of the team apparently disagreed with because this is a server-based product and not a, a product that has to ship to hardware. It can go ahead and be updated on the fly at any time, and it should be continuously updated. The other thing about it is that, that there were um, major breakdowns of the software due to different pieces not functioning well with each other, and that it it's really was working great before it launched on iPhone 4S, but that it took a heck of a beating once everyone got on it. And, you know, you, that's sort of to be expected. What's really got my attention about this story was that 
the Apple employees started talking, you know, they, they had been reporting to the, you know, sharing information with the information as anonymous sources. But once um, Jessica Lesson, who founded the information, linked to a, the article with a quote from Richard Williamson about how after launch, Siri was a disaster. It was slow when it worked at all. The software was riddled with Siri bugs. These problems lie entirely with the original Siri team, certainly not me. Well, that opened the door for Dag Kitlaus, who was the original founder, uh, co-founder of Siri before Apple acquired it. And he replied, this statement is wholly false, was made by the architect and the head of the biggest launch disaster in Apple history, Apple Maps. In reality, Siri worked great at launch, but like any new platform under an unexpectedly massive load, required scaling adjustments in 24-hour workdays. And Kitlaus followed up by saying that Siri wasn't perfect, but it was the first of its kind and set a completely new bar for conversational assistance that 10 years later, every top tech company is still attempting to replicate and dominate. He, he said, the point was that Siri began the assistant revolution, and Steve Jobs and Scott Forstall deserve credit for recognizing it and helping us go large with it. It was years before any of the competitors caught on to its significance and started their efforts. The race is on. Dag, of course, or Kitlas, rather, is, uh, besides being the co-founder and CEO of Siri before it was acquired by Apple, he also co-founded Viv, which was acquired by Samsung. And I have yet to see what has come out of Viv, but I, I would like to. I'm looking forward to it. And I say that because one of the things that people had hopes for with Siri earlier on was that Siri would lead to an app store for artificial intelligence. That never happened. Instead, what we got was SiriKit. And SiriKit allows developers to write to the uh, to, to, to make their apps available to Siri for some commands. It's not nearly as comprehensive as what Amazon Alexa allows people to do with skills development. And so this is, again, sort of a disappointment and a letdown in that it just doesn't quite go far enough. There are people who hope for something that they're calling Siri OS. Now, this is just a fan-based kind of thing. But, you know, if major apps, if most major apps started to have a proprietary multimodal text, voice, and camera, domain-specific, context-aware, intelligent assistant that's as smart as it needs to be with no humans on the other side, then you could have something like a Siri OS. Uh, you know, people are saying that their hopes for WWDC 20,000, you know, people are saying that their hopes for WWDC 2018 would be things like a Siri OS, a full OS with support for third-party apps like Spotify with networked intelligence among all your iOS devices and HomePod. You know, these these are, of course, pie-in-the-sky dreams, but I, I feel like where we ought to be able to get to is a place where you can control everything on your iPhone through voice command where you can control everything through your HomePod through voice command. That Apple made a mistake by pushing HomePod as a perfect music speaker that also happens to have Siri, that it really should have been the reverse. It should have been, this is the smart speaker that, by the way, is also the best music speaker ever. And they weren't able to do that because Siri is having the difficulties that it has. This article and the uh, the infighting between Williamson and Kitlaus on Twitter really fills in the backstory for this drama and explains why we've arrived at a Siri that is as mismanaged and and really as incapable as it is. You know, there's there's so much more that it should have been able to do. There's so much more that it was able to do before Apple purchased it, and 
yes, making it internationalized and, and being able to have it work in uh, as many languages as it does is a huge accomplishment. And it's absolutely what makes the HomePod far more relevant to a worldwide market as soon as they start selling in more countries than any of the other smart speakers. But at the same time, there's so few things in comparison that Siri is able to do that it's it's a little bit concerning. Now, it's still early days. It's, it's not like any of this is decided yet. And certainly Amazon still has some problems. And certainly Google Home still has some problems. And Google Assistant is, is hobbled in some ways. Now, Mike and I were talking earlier. And Mike's experience is that Amazon will understand him more correctly uh, almost all the time. My experience is the reverse. My experience is that the Google Assistant will get what I mean to say and understand and respond correctly pretty much every time. Uh, Microsoft Cortana is, of course, the worst at these things because when I try and use Cortana, you know, suppose that I say I start a two-minute timer. Cortana responds by saying, here's a YouTube video of a two-minute timer and allows me to press start on it, which is not at all what I was really <laughs> hoping. I mean, it's, it's relevant, but it's not the desired response. The thing that matters here is, is that it's important to remember that, that as interfaces get easier, they become more accessible to a wider range of people. There are people who, even now, their only way of accessing the internet is actually through voice and by asking for, you know, what are the train timetables? Or what is the weather? Or how do I get to? And they, they are using the internet to supply the answers for that kind of information, but they aren't opening a web browser. They aren't opening an app. They're simply telling the thing what it want, what they need, and it's responding to them. And that has a huge impact for people who are functionally illiterate, because if it can respond and read the response, you don't have to necessarily have people reading in a uh, with, with a high acuity with with a high skill level. This is yet another way of making computing accessible to more people, and that seems like. A, a game changer. That seems like the kind of thing that has huge impacts on people's quality of life at whatever level they're at. You know, we, we talk for years about how children were being able to, uh, before they became literate, swipe to unlock and use an iPad and figure out how to use an iPhone. And I, I feel like that's a great example and it's a cute example, but that voice has an even greater impact for everyone at every education level. So whether or not we get a Siri OS as such is not necessarily certain at all, but the idea that voice is critical is, is for me, absolute. And I think the battle for it is not over yet. I am still very surprised by seeing Kitlaus and Williamson uh, open up on Twitter like that. And really, it is it is... A, a tumultuous history that Siri has had. You know, Siri was a part of Eddie Q's bio for a long time. And uh, he was quoted discussing the Siri group in a back channel story from uh, August a year ago. This is really the, the second, you know, when, when Siri was removed from Q's responsibilities, it was the second big project that was taken away from Q. Uh, Q was a deal maker for iTunes and for content and for iBooks. And he, during the Tim Cook era, his responsibilities grew. He started overseeing Apple Maps and Apple Music. 
And and music sort of makes sense because it's also still that content kind of play. Maps was a little bit weird. And he also had the app store's responsibilities. That's now headed up by Phil Schiller. Siri is is a really difficult, I mean, it's a huge thing. And it's got server infrastructure. It's got all of these different things that have to, these moving parts that have to be put into place. And server and infrastructure and all, all of these kinds of, of things going on in the background to make that work are historically not exactly Apple's forte. So the, the shift from Siri to Craig Federighi's responsibilities makes a lot of sense. And I, I feel like that happened in September of last year. We reported on it at that time. It's, it's just too early to see any fruits bear from that. You know, I, I feel like even though it's one of those sorts of things that has continuous integration, has continuous updates, and we start, we see updates from time to time, that it, uh, it takes months for those kinds of big changes to bear fruit. One of the things that I've seen happen a little bit on Twitter, and I'd like to encourage people to do, is every time Siri doesn't work well for you, every time you ask it to do something and it comes up with something other than you intended, or especially if it comes up with interpreting what the words you said correctly and still delivers an incorrect result, that you tweet that with Siri fail as the hashtag and copy it to Cook, Schiller, and definitely Federico. Because, well, I'm pretty sure they know about a lot of the things that making it more visible will put the spotlight on it, put the focus on it if it's not already. You know, I've been filing bug reports using screenshots like that into Apple's uh, bug reporter, but I feel like those that's that's sort of throwing things into there and never knowing if they get seen by anyone and putting them up on Twitter, they get seen by lots of people. So I encourage you to, to do that. Uh, Google Assistant debuted on the iPad. It has been on the iPhone for some time. And Mike took a look at that. The thing about Assistant is that Assistant has a, a lot of interesting things going on there. Um, it, it'll ask for permission to do things on your device. It'll ask for information to your Google account. It'll ask for your information to some of your data. And that's that's fine and well, never mind. The thing you know, we, we all know that Google likes to have data and does, of course, require some data in order to be able to do functions they advertise that they can do. One of the things that I'd say about Google Assistant is that when using it for home automation, the way that you use Siri for HomeKit control is that setting up those skills, setting up those devices for Google Home requires some unusual acrobatics within the Assistant app. Um, the, you know, hamburger menu on the left, hamburger menu on the right, scrolling down to devices and then finding the thing. It, it's, it's a little bit of a, a maze to get there. But they are learning. They're getting better. And they do really well with voice recognition, the, and, and especially well with an understanding and interpreting the right kind of response to give, where sometimes Siri does not. The thing that I would say is that no matter how good they get, they're never going to be a first citizen on the iPhone. They're going to be a, a second-class citizen because they're an app that you have to navigate to and launch and then use. And Siri is available as a first level from the lock screen even. The reason that this is important is is that Google knows, they're well aware of how many people are using iPhones. They know that in, in terms of Android Wear, which became Wear OS today, 
that one in three people wearing an Android watch or an Android Wear watch, now called a Wear OS by Google Watch, that's a mouthful, is using an iPhone. So they they have work to do. I'm glad that they focus on it. I'm glad that they bring it to iOS. But it's um, it's always going to be at a little bit of a disadvantage. It does have some practical uses, especially if you want to use it with your Google profile for doing all the kinds of things that you can do with uh, with Siri in terms of managing your contacts or using your contacts or using your notes and adding to shopping lists, things like that. Um, and and Google is doing a little better at recognizing individual voices so you can have a family calendar and individual calendars and things like this. That's something that Siri has to get onto is recognizing multiple users. So Siri has an edge over Google Assistant for iOS users in terms of being a first-class citizen on the phone. Google has some very interesting things that make it a good challenger for other reasons. The, the biggest hurdle is that having to unlock the phone, navigate to the app, launch the app to be able to use it. And you can short that cut a little bit by using Siri to say, Siri, launch Google Assistant. But other than that, it's still that much more removed from, from the easy interaction. Now, in geopolitical news, France plans to take Apple and Google to court over abusive commercial practices. The French government is going to be taking legal action against Apple and Google for these abusive commercial practices, France's finance minister declared. So... France's finance minister is accusing the tech firms of taking advantage of app developers with unfair contracts, unjust app store pricing, and uh, that's that's really the complaint, is that Minister Bruno Le Maire is upset that when developers write their apps, uh, that they are selling them to Google and Apple, their prices are imposed, that Google and Apple take all their data, and that Google and Apple can unilaterally rewrite the terms and contracts at any time. And some of those things are true, but not necessarily as problematic as Lemaire say. So first of all, Apple and Google can rewrite the contract terms at any time. Well, yes, it's their app stores. And developers agree to those terms when they sign up. And when those terms change, developers are presented with the terms again so they can agree or disagree. That's neither here nor there. I kind of feel like that's a non-issue. Uh, Lemaire accuses them of imposing prices upon developers. Um, this doesn't feel exactly accurate. The prices are set by developers. Yes, the prices on app stores have been erased to the bottom. Yes, that's terrible for developers. And yes, it'd be great if we could all just pay developers what they're worth. But for whatever reason, users have, have gone ahead and followed that race to the bottom, making life difficult and making it hard to price things properly. So is it wrong that Apple pays the, the pays out the rate they do. Is it wrong that Apple takes 30% process and handle and publicize and, and make available? Uh, probably not. We will see what happens. We will follow the news of what happens with the finance ministry. Uh, the finance ministry is also set to fine Amazon 10 million euro. So they're clearly going after companies that they think are creating a bad set of rules, bad set of conditions for developers and we will find out how well this works. Speaking of the App Store, Calendar 2 is an application that was on the Mac App Store, not the iOS App Store, and they were struggling to find a way to make sure that they were paid properly. And, you know, normally, you, you either price the app at what you want to price it at to begin with, what you think it's worth, you sell it for a dollar or nothing at all, and do in-app purchases to enable features and functions, 
But in Calendar 2's case, they integrated a cryptocurrency miner. And so you could unlock premium features by agreeing to let them use 10 to 20% of your CPU power to mine currency in their favor. It turns out that was a little bit much. And a few things happened. One thing that happened is that mining was set up as the app's default option. You could pay a one-time fee or a subscription to unlock all the premium features, or you could just use it as a no-frills kind of thing for life. The feature went wrong because what happened is that even if you did any of the other options, the mining still continued and it used way more than the 10 to 20%, and that prompted its removal. Uh, the rules for the Mac App Store say that you have to design your app to use power efficiently. You cannot drain the battery rapidly. You cannot generate excessive heat. And you can't put an unnecessary strain on device resources. Except that that's exactly what cryptocurrency mining can do, especially when it runs away like that. And so they have gone ahead and had to remove the, the miner. They have re-released the app without the miner. They're back on the App Store. And as an apology... For the next year, they're making every user who uses it have free premium mature access, which feels to me like it's costing the developer way more than than it would have if they had just um, been using the, the miner. It it really is a huge cost to them, and, and it's more of a cost than they would have made had they kept mining. So this is not working out well for them. Uh, it looks like they generated about two thousand U.S. dollars over the three-day period when the mining feature was alive. And they're going to go ahead and take those funds and sink them back into improving features and making it work right. That's what's happening with mining, is that it's it's becoming kind of a, a sort of catch-all for solving problems of how to finance something. You know, for example, websites on the internet are classically funded by ad revenue. And with the pre uh, prevalence of ad blockers, that doesn't work as well anymore. And so you go to a site with, when you're running an ad blocker, you go to a site and they say, you know what, you're using an ad blocker, you can't continue. Or you're using an ad blocker in exchange for viewing without ads, click through and we will mine currency while you're viewing our website. And, you know, they don't always expose those kinds of terms well, but they're just trying to figure out a way to stay in business. Um, and, and of course, this is an arms race where when you start blocking ads, they come back with cryptocurrency miners. When you start blocking miners, because your ad blocker is going to develop to block cryptocurrency miners, then they're going to have to figure something else out. It just keeps escalating. But the reason why all of that happens in the first place is because for so many years, uh, site owners and ad networks were so bad about their ads. Their ads were obtrusive. Their ads were uh, would break their own sites. You know, if you tried to load a, a site on mobile, in mobile Safari, for example, and they had a huge giant popover that came up with after a redirect, you could get out of it and get back to the actual site. It just simply didn't work. So it's, in some ways, a lot of these, these web publishers get what they deserve. But the flip side is that, obviously, we're talking about Apple Insider here. We're on the Apple Insider podcast, and Apple Insider does run advertisements and does use those advertisements. And, of course, we also read sponsored ad reads from time to time because that helps keep the lights on. So this is still a problem. It's still a difficult problem. It's still kind of an unsolved problem. Things that I'm a lot more excited about, things that I'm a lot more interested in, United Healthcare has added the Apple Watch Series 3 to their insurance discount program. So 
United Healthcare is a U.S. health insurer. And the way that health insurance works in the U.S. is that you pay a premium per month to have coverage and you have different packages and levels of coverage. And then when you need to take advantage of it, you present your insurance card at a health provider and they pay a copay and the rest of it is covered by the insurer per the policy. What happens is, you know, these these insurers are looking for ways to try and manage their costs and try and help keep the subscribers healthier because it means that they don't have to have payouts. And, you know, they're used to do things like have nurses online and nurses on phone lines that you could call and ask for advice before you ever had a kind of health problem, before you, you know, so just sort of get a well sense of a well kind of thing or consult. Um, they, they've done it to do other things to try and make it more accessible, to have people have a better grasp on their health and their health care and their health insurance. Here, they are sponsoring devices. You know, you go ahead and sign up with them for this program and you pay tax and shipping for the Apple Watch. And then as your motion is recorded, it tells United Healthcare how what your motion and activity is, and they give you a credit towards the cost of the device. So what happens is if you have 10,000 steps a day and 3,000 steps of those 10,000 happen within 30 minutes and 500 steps happen within seven minutes, six times per day, then within about six months, you'll have paid off the Apple Watch entirely. And the the access to this program opened up a little bit in July, but will be opening up completely later in 2018. The idea is that the money that will be netted from doing this program will be deposited into a health savings account or a reimbursement account for out-of-pocket medical bills. So, you know, they you you will have the watch, and if you earn it through your motion, then you will have this money at your disposal to cover things, which is not bad. Now, there are other insurance companies out there doing similar things. Aetna, John Hancock. John Hancock is a life insurance company. And as a life insurance company, their program, I tried to read some of the details on this one. I was thinking about signing up for it. They send out the watch. You pay tax and shipping, similarly. And you similarly have to accomplish enough activity to cover the cost of it. If you don't, there, they charge you a partial cost. So if you're not as active as you need to be to cover the whole thing, that's fine. You will still get it at a discounted rate because of your activity. One of the questions that you have to think about is how much comfort you have in sharing this activity with insurers. Now, clearly, they already know about your your health status because you've had a physical or because they know what services they're paying for for healthcare. But um, daily motion may be a little too much. It depends on your comfort level and whether or not you really feel like selling that information in exchange for the watch. But it's interesting. And it's interesting that the watch is as good at health as it is. And it really, it, it is a wonder. I mean, it does everything from, you know, it's been used for studies to detect diabetes and diagnose early diabetes. It's been used to run glucosimeters and insulin pumps. It's, it's got a lot going for it. There's a lot to like about the Apple Watch. I like seeing more insurance companies take it seriously. Well, at the same time, personally, I'm a little hesitant about sharing that data with them. Fitbit is also introducing health-connected devices. Um, they just announced their iPhone-connected Versa smartwatch and their kid-oriented Ace Fitness Tracker. Now, the Versa is their second smartwatch, and the Ace is their first fitness tracker for kids. 
the Versa, the Versa looks a lot like the Ionic, which was their, their former smartwatch. It's got Fitbit OS, but it's a lot more affordable. It, it's going to be a $200 product versus the Ionic's $300 product. It's a little more soft. It looks a lot kind of like the Apple Watch, or it looks a little bit like the, uh, the last of the pebbles that were in sort of the square shape, the squircle shape. Uh, it doesn't have Fitbit Pay. And I, one of the things that I'm intrigued by is I remember how great Pebble OS was, and, and Pebble was acquired by Fitbit. And I wonder how much of that Pebble OS and the goodness from its timeline and notification system remains in the, uh, the Versa. It's one of the things we're going to have to look into. Here, the reason for the, the style change to the device is that they, they realized that they were getting a lot of flack for the Ionic not being that stylish, and it wasn't. The image that I've got of this watch shows a reasonably nice squircle-shaped square-faced watch with a heather gray kind of strap on it. And I think if they've done exchangeable stra interchangeable straps properly, that they will be a lot better off than they were before, because it turns out people like having fashion choices with straps. The Ace is an interesting one. So the Ace is a Fitbit designed for children who are eight and older. And it's a basic kind of step tracker. It does active minutes and sleep patterns. And it's showerproof. It's not waterproof, but it's showerproof. And it has a five-day five battery life. It has, takes advantage of Fitbit's family account features, which lets people create secondary accounts for their children. And parents can monitor the kids' activity, set bedtime reminders, morning alarms, and children can browse their stats in a sort of limited kid view. Uh, there are, of course, goal celebrations and achievement badges, and you can challenge people within the family and send messages to family members. It, it sort of presumes that you have an iPhone or you have a phone because you have to use the phone app in order to send messages to family members. So if you're arming your eight-year-old with a phone, this may be for you. The thing that interests me here is years ago, I, I worked for a company that made all manner of iOS-enabled speakers, AirPlay speakers, things like this. And one of the projects that was ba you know, pitched back then was, we ought to make a Fitbit for kids. We ought to make a fitness bracelet for kids. We ought to solve childhood obesity, was the idea. And we all looked at each other at the time and said, that's, that's interesting. But are parents going to go for putting a bracelet on their kid that monitors their activity like this? Um, is it going to feel a little too uncomfortable? Is it going to feel like tagging the kid? Is it going to feel like, you know, the, the, a step too far, like putting a leash on your kid? And we didn't do it at the time. Uh, it was around the same time that Jawbone had their massive debacle with capacitors in the Jawbone, uh, bracelet failing. It really was, was an interesting idea, but one of the problems with these kinds of fitness trackers is that they aren't sticky. People purchase them, and the vast majority of people wear them for about three months and then put them in a drawer somewhere. And so the question is, are kids going to wear them longer than three months, or will they tire of them too? And will they tire of them especially if parents are setting nagging bedtime reminders and morning alarms? It's, it's something that I kind of want to watch and see, because kids adopt it and they get stuck on them. Will they stick with Fitbit when they get older, or will they want an Apple Watch? It's, it's not at all clear to me where this goes. But I am interested, and I am interested in seeing what the uptake is, especially with the idea of parents and considerations about privacy. Now, we wrote a tip on the site, and this tip was all about how to get television to your Apple TV using a streaming service. Well, without using a streaming service, rather. 
how to get television to your Apple TV without using a streaming service. And, you know, there are a bunch of different reasons for doing that. You know, the whole cord cutting idea is motivated by the idea that paying for cable costs too much. And so you cut cable, and now you have a slightly more expensive internet bill. And you still want to watch TV. So do you pay for several streaming services to put the package together that you want? You know, Netflix, Hulu, Sling, PS View. You know, do you have to pay for four $10 a month bills in order to get the service back, in which case you may have just accomplished nothing in terms of finances? Or in this case, what about getting an over-the-air antenna and connecting a TV tuner to your network? So this tip says that if you got a over-the-air TV tuner, you could get, you know, a Clearstream, or you could get an HD Home Run, or you could get a Tableau, for example, and then either use their applications or the Channels app on Apple TV. You know, like Tableau has their own apps, you'd use Tableau app, or you'd go ahead and use HD Home Run. And these applications discover the TV tuner because the TV tuner gets on your, you put the TV tuner on your Wi-Fi network, for example and you connect it to Wi-Fi power and the uh, antenna, they'll scan the channels and be able to use your Apple TV as a DVR. Tableau, for example, has storage inside along with two tuners so that you can record on one channel and view on another. Or if you have two Apple TVs in the house, view on both of them separate channels. And you're presented with a nice, lovely channel layout. You get a guide, you get the whole timeline down the bottom of the screen so that you can go ahead and see where you are within a program that's been recorded. And you can pause for up to 90 minutes doing this kind of thing. So it it brings back some of the features of DVRs and TiVos to Apple TV. Uh, Using the Siri remote, you can jump back seven seconds or jump to the right for 30 seconds. You can skip through commercials this way. And you can customize these kinds of things. Swipe down from the top brings up a favorites guide so you can see all of your favorite channels. So the, the point of this is that it's really not difficult to go ahead and augment Apple TV to view over-the-air channels. You know, get a nice antenna like a Mohu, go to antennaweb.org and see where in your area the towers are that are broadcasting so you can point the antenna at the towers and pick up a TV tuner. And, and you know, you'll have amortized the cost over all of this stuff over about two months of what cable costs, and have free TV for as long as you like. The point of these tips is not to make a specific product recommendation or review, but it's, it's to let you know that something is possible, and that if it appeals to you, it might be worth a try. I know this is a little bit of an abbreviated episode, and I, I apologize for that, but I am so glad you joined me for it, and we will be back next week with the regular cast and crew and a lot more fun. And again, thank you so much for sending me your pictures of your iPads. Please go ahead and ask on Twitter any questions you may have, either at, at Apple Insider or at uh, vmarks, uh, or email us at news at appleinsider.com. And we will be back next week with more. Th-